Blog Talk Radio. or another they may not be out but you know the information is open to the public 
Um, not everything that I post on Facebook is open to the public, but I do disseminate a lot of excellent information that's available to people that follow that particular profile. So I wanted to make sure that was clear. And I've received some beautiful emails um, in the past couple of weeks, and I promise I will respond tomorrow. It gets hard to respond over the weekend and toward the latter part of the week because I, that's when I usually go in depth in my uh, research for the shows. So I kind of get caught up in that and, you know, just different things that are happening. So I promise I will respond to you all tomorrow, and I just thank you. Thank you for thinking of me. For anyone that's interested in contacting me, my email address is blackfreethinkers at gmail.com. Again, that's blackfreethinkers at gmail.com. And I promise to respond. Um, one of the correspondents stated that they had sent me an email last year and I didn't respond, there's a really, really good chance that it went to the spam folder. So if anyone else out there attempted to contact me and didn't get a response, my apologies. It definitely was not intentional. It was not deliberate. I am not ignoring you, but I appreciate you. So thank you so much. If you want to give it another try, we can do that. I will keep my eye on that spam folder. But my Gmail is acting wonky, too, because I wasn't getting some of my meetup stuff. So, oh, yeah, also we have a meetup page for Black Skeptics Chicago. Again, that's Black Skeptics Chicago. We have meetups and, you know, a wonderful, beautiful group of people. And, you know, we all enjoy ourselves. I uploaded some pictures to the site from our um, National Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers for the past couple of years. And, you know, I'm thinking about what we're going to do next year. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the National Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers, it is always the last Sunday in February. So the last Sunday in February, you know, in commemoration of Black History Month. So for you organizers out there, um, you know, just giving you the heads up, maybe you can go out and start planning now. You know, the beautiful part about the National Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers is you don't have to be a group organizer. You don't have to go out and gather in a group. You know, it doesn't have to be a big shindig. You know, you don't have to throw a dinner party. You don't have to throw, you know, uh, you know, a big lecture or anything like that. It can be, you know, two people getting together and having a cup of coffee. Something as simple as that, and you don't have to be an organizer to do that. If you have a friend that's a non-believer or even a friend that's a believer, because this is open, and this is not only geared toward communities of color, this is geared toward all communities. And we do have allies out there, and, you know, we've had them come and, you know, fellowship with us, if you will. You know, we've had um, Caucasian, Latinos um, come out and celebrate with us, and we appreciated it. And, you know, we will continue to appreciate the friendship and, you know, our allies. And so, guys, you know, if there's only a couple of you out there, you can go out and have a cup of coffee. If you want to make it a day of service and, you know, um, get with some community groups, you know, that's fine. You know, we even welcome believers if they want to come out and talk to us and we can get to know each other and, you know, bridge the gap and gather a better understanding. Whatever you want to do, you know, the National Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers is what you make it. 
So, you know, we're trying to encourage that creativity. So, guys, you know, again, if you have any questions, you can reach out to Donald Wright. You can reach out to Dr. Hutchinson. You can reach out to myself. You can reach out to, you know, any of the organizers um, out there. You know, many of them, you know, have organized um, some events around the International Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers. So you can ask them some general questions. And if they don't have the answers, they'll redirect you. But the organizer, you know, this is the brainchild of Donald Wright, the author of um, The Only Prayer I'll Ever Pray is Let My People Go. So and that's a really good book if you guys want to check that out. So anyway, that's what's going on with that. Another announcement that I posted last week, and I'm going to post it again today, but the African Americans for Humanism is having their regional conference in D.C. Next year is going to start on Saturday, February the 1st at 9 a.m., and it ends that evening, but there are some activities that are taking place Friday evening for those of you that want to come in early. So, again, the AAH conference for 2014 is taking place on February the 1st. First, and this is going to happen in Washington, D.C. They have, you know, a great lineup. They have a very, very good lineup. So, um, you know, guys, go out there and take a look. I'll post the article for this, the information for it, a little bit later. And um, this is going to be a very good conference. They have some great lineups. Um, so, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's a registration fee for this, and all that information is available. So just kind of letting you guys know about what's happening there. Also, there's a new project that Dr. Hutchinson, myself, um, Donald Wright, and Raina Rhodes, um, we're putting this together. It's called People of Color Beyond Faith. And with this particular project, um, it's just going to incorporate a lot of, you know, different ideas. You know, um, guys, you can go out there to our Facebook page. Again, it's People of Color Beyond Faith. We have a YouTube channel. We also have a Google Plus page, and we have a Twitter account. And, you know, the website will be built soon. But... On Sunday, November 24th, we're going to have a webisode, a webcast, and we're going to talk about a couple of issues. That information will be forthcoming, but that is Sunday, November 24th. This is right before Thanksgiving, so um gives you something to kind of think about as you sit down and enjoy that nice free meal that someone is going to prepare, not necessarily celebrating the holiday, but why turn down a good meal, right? So... And these, you know, webcasts are going to happen every month. So that's something to look forward, and it comes under the people of color beyond faith. Now, in February, on Valentine's Day weekend, we will host a conference, an online conference, that weekend. So on that particular weekend, it will be a couple of days of conferences, of different panels, talking about, you know, a plethora of different issues. We're going to have different people moderating the panels, and it's just going to be absolutely beautiful. Stay tuned. This is something that we wanted to give back to you because we understand not everybody can, you know, attend these conferences for different reasons, you know, but we wanted to give something back 
We want you to see how these conferences are conducted. We want you to be a part of the conversation. So while this will take place on Google+, Plus, it will be fed live to YouTube, and also we have the Twitter hashtag, hashtag POC Beyond Chat. And, you know, we will interact with you via Twitter as well as YouTube. Now, every Thursday we have a Twitter chat. And this last Thursday was our first one. It was pretty good. You know, we answered a lot of questions, put some questions out there. And we encourage, you know, questions and comments and suggestions. So every Thursday evening at 8 o'clock, each 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7 o'clock Central Standard Time, 5 o'clock Pacific, we will have a Twitter chat. And, you know, again, you can ask us questions. We'll put questions out there. This is not just to the secular community. This is also applied to communities of faith because we want to answer those questions. We want to make ourselves available. And, again, this is for you. And, you know, with the um, panel, with the conference in, um, on February 14th during the Valentine's Day weekend, um, we will have, you know, members of the faith community. And so, again, we're just trying to facilitate a better understanding, but most importantly, we want to give something back to those of you who have supported us over the years, and we just want to say thank you. Now, the last announcement for the people of Color Beyond Faith is we will be holding our conference um, next October. And that information is coming forth. But that conference, it will be a physical conference, and it will take place in Los Angeles, California. So October of 2014, there will be another conference, again, a multitude of panels, and it's just going to be absolutely phenomenal. So, guys, look for me at the AAH conference because I will be there. And also look for me at the People of Color Beyond Faith conference in Los Angeles, California, October of next year. I don't do a lot of public appearances um, due to health issues, but um, I definitely will make it to those two conferences, and I look forward to meeting you. I look forward to seeing you. You know, those of you that have been promising me hugs and all of that, I am going to collect, and I just want to let you guys know how much I truly, truly appreciate each and every last one of you. And I see we have, you know, a caller with, his, with their hand up. Give me a minute. Let me finish out these announcements. So today we're going to talk about privileged mutiny. It's part one. And we're talking about domestic terrorism. We're going to talk about, you know, just a number of issues. This is actually a three-part series, and I've already posted the other two. The second part, which will take place um, next Sunday, it's called Inner City Blues, and we will talk about public policy, you know, one of my favorite subjects here. We will talk about urban planning. We will talk about gentrification. We will talk about, um, you know, lost cities. We'll talk about, you know, a number of, you know, different topics. And the show after that, which is part three of this Privileged Mutiny series, we will discuss affirmative action, okay, and we'll talk about affirmative action, we'll talk about set-aside programs, we'll talk about the middle class, um, we'll talk about some of the issues that are taking place, and that promises to be a very lively conversation, and, you know, I'm looking forward to that. Now, after these three shows, you know, I may add a fourth, I have not quite decided yet, 
but there's another series that I have put together, and it's called Confronting and Destroying Myths, okay? And this is a series, and so far I have it down to four parts. And, again, you know, I reserve the right to switch some of these around and possibly delay the show and push it back because you just never know what type of tomfoolery is going to happen within the next few weeks. But anyway, the first series, we will be talking about homophobia in the black community. And basically, we're going to basically just destroy that myth, destroy that stereotype, that generalization, the blanket statements, because personally, I've been attacked by quite a few um, gay white activists out there, you know, claiming that the black community is homophobic, um, talking about Proposition 8, and we're going to go through all of that. We're going to point the finger to the Mormon church. We're going to point the finger to Scientology. We're going to look at the statistics. We're even going to talk about Stonewall, and we're going to talk about the gay rights movement and what has transpired and what has happened. So we're going to talk about homophobia in the black community, and we're going to talk about it in depth. So, you know, again, we're going to break that stereotype down. We're going to break that myth down because um, you have a few squeaky wheels out there, but that's in all communities out there that are homophobic, but as far as the stereotype that the black community is overwhelmingly homophobic, that's a false um, image. It's, it's just absolutely fallacious. So we definitely will address that. The second part of the Confronting and Destroying Myths series will be these stereotypes. Now, the second part is predicated on, you know, the video by that Republican from North Carolina and as well as others, you know, and I've heard Democrats and Republicans say this, but the Republicans have taken this to a new level, talking about the black community and about laziness and fraud, you know, the welfare queen stereotypes and all of that. So we're going to talk about that particular stereotype and those mythologies, you know, regarding the black community. We're going to pull out some raw numbers, and we're going to talk about those that benefit from SNAP from welfare, from disability, we're just going to hit on a number of subjects. So that promises to be a very good show as well. The third part of that series is, again, Confronting and Destroying Myth series. We're going to talk about sexual improprieties um, and deviant behavior in the black community and take down a lot of those stereotypes as well. Um, yeah, it, it has to be addressed. Um, is, is, is just unreal. We'll talk about it. Um, what I will say is that teen pregnancy rates have gone down. Um, we'll talk about, you know, the lack of access to birth control. We're going to talk about a lot of different things, but I'm just hitting on a couple of topics off the top of my head. And, you know, I'm looking forward to that show as well, especially in light of um, – an issue that has been brought to my attention as of late. So that should be interesting. And the fourth part of the Destroying and Confronting Myth series will be, this is fun, destroying a mythology or, or a perception that is being perpetuated by some of our black nationalist friends. And what they're saying is black feminism supports white supremacy. 
which is the furthest thing from the truth. Like I said, somebody called me a Negro bedwinch. I had absolutely no idea what it meant. So I had to basically go out and do some research to find out what it meant, and I'm the furthest thing from that, but, you know, I won't even validate it because there is no such thing as a Negro bedwinch. But, again, we will talk about that and break that down and, you know, talk about why black feminism does not support white supremacy. And it's, it's just interesting um, how that works out. So all of that good, fun stuff is coming up, and, you know, I'm looking forward to it. So let's see here. We have somebody on hold. So before I get started with this series, let me pick this up. You were graduation. That's my book. I, I didn't show it to you yet. one of the quotes from that rally from one of the, you know, uh, 
activist, if that's what you want to call them, whose name is Larry Clayman of Freedom Watch and his conservative political advocacy group. And he says, and I quote, I call upon all of you to wage a second American nonviolent revolution to use civil disobedience and to demand that this president leave town to get up, to put the Quran down, to get up off his knees, and to figuratively come out with his hands up, end quote. And, you know, this is absolutely outrageous. Um, They had Ted Cruz out there who was responsible for the shutdown. Sarah Palin was out there. And, of course, we know this is supported by Michelle Bachman and others um, of that same ilk. And they decided, you know, to remove the barricades at the rally and to toss them in a pile nearby. And the police just sat there and watched them. And then after the speeches, you know, the crowd, they went down to the Lincoln Memorial and removed the barriers there also, you know. And, you know, the officers, the police officers tried to put them up, but the protesters took them from the officer's hand and and carried them away. And, And this is okay. And, you know, Sarah Palin said, and I quote, you look around, Though you look around, though, and you see these barricades, and you have to ask yourself, is this any way that a commander-in-chief would show his respect, his gratitude to our military? This is a matter of shutdown priorities, end quote. And, you know, it was just horrible. They were calling the president, you know, a punk. Um, and one of the speakers said that, you know, the president is not the president of quote, the, end quote, people, but, quote, his, end quote, people. You know, there were signs that were saying, end Obama, and you know, it was just horrible. And in addition to this, I remember they had another rally in which people, you know, gathered with, you know, their weapons in full view, and they wanted to hold another um, rally with the same type of premise, but instead they sent the people to their state capitals. But, again, how is all of this possible? How are they doing? They're trying. They're attempting to run, you know, the president out of town. They're, they've tried everything to, you know, kill the legacy. They've done, you know, everything. Um, it's just the whole thing. And this movement has only been around, you know, for about four years. And I'm talking about the Tea Party. And, you know, just the extremes that they're going to in an effort to, you know, discredit President Obama to basically, as they say, take their White House back, take their country back. And, you know, that's coded language. For those of you that aren't familiar, it's definitely coded language. Uh, We have Raina on the line. Wait a minute. We have Raina Acting up. There you go. We have Raina on the line with us. She should be. Yeah, there you go. Hey. Okay, you know how that goes. But yeah, you know, just this coded language. And, you know, this has been happening for a while. This is nothing new. You know, history tends to repeat itself. And we're going to give you some historical facts. And while it's not necessarily you know, people storming the White House. It's about actions that have been taken against communities of color 
and running people out of town. And we all know what's happening with our economy and how the economy is, you know, really slow right now. And, you know, with a lot of the exportation, if you will, of jobs, you know, jobs are far and few between, especially manufacturing jobs. They've been sent across the way. And, you know, what I find interesting is people are trying to blame Obama. There are quite a few people attempting to blame Bush. Um, some of this you have to take all the way back to Bill Clinton. And, you know, we got to lay the blame where it, it, it is deserved. Um, go back and read the information about NAFTA and what happened with NAFTA and how that opened up avenues so that manufacturing jobs can go other places and, you know, basically get cheaper labor, you know, tax deductibles and no tax, really. So, you know, I just wanted to put that in the proper context. And, again, we're talking about domestic terrorism. And Travis from Funny to the Moon put up this meme the other day, and the meme said most of the terrorist activity in the United States in recent years, and, you know, I'm adding this, I say history, has not come from Muslims, but from radical Christians, white supremacists, and far-right militia groups. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, you have a certain sector of people who feel that they are above the law and that it is their manifest destiny, if you will, to be in control to not have to follow the law because they feel as though they are the law. So that's where the word mutiny came from, privileged mutiny. So basically they feel that they are above the so-called authority. And, again, you know, um, there have been so many incidents um, that have happened over the years. And today we're going to talk about, you know, the hard scrabble riots. We're going to talk about the Cincinnati riots. We're going to talk about the anti-abolitionist riots. We're going to talk about the Wilmington insurrection, the Tulsa riot, Rosewood riot. Um, you know, maybe we'll talk a little bit about, um, you know, what happened in the state of Oregon. But, you know, as I was researching this, you know, I found out some information that I didn't know, and that's what I love about this. And I thank you guys for keeping me on my toes because it, it helps me. It helps me, and I've, I've learned quite a bit. You know, how many of you out there knew that there was anti-Chinese um, violence in Oregon, in Washington? Um, you know, how many of you all knew that we had Cubans in this country that were utilized as slaves and Mexicans utilized as slaves? You know, we had Latino slaves, and... You know, it's, it's just, you know, interesting. Um, you'll have to go back. And, I mean, even during World War II, we had internment camps in which, you know, Japanese Americans as well as, you know, some of the Aleutians or Eskimos were put in internment camps. You know, we encourage mm -hmm. you guys to go back and read the history so you can kind of get an understanding, you know, as to what happened. But, you know, riots have been happening in this country for a long time. I spoke once briefly about how some of the, you know, poor whites, you know, actually attacked plantations, you know, attacked the slaves because the slaves were working and they weren't. You know, if they were working, they were working for next to nothing. And so we're going to talk about how in some of these cities, and especially some of the more prosperous, free black cities, how they were destroyed 
an attack by white mobs, and basically it was due in, in some parts, you know, due to competition for jobs, in some cases jealousy, sometimes just outright anger and racism, you know, a variety of different reasons. Sometimes it was done under the guise of protecting, you know, white women in their virginal, you know, uh, divinity, if you will. So, you know, it's, it's been a real interesting history, and this happens over and over and over. So I kind of want you all to kind of understand what's happening because this is nothing new. It's just recycled. It's recycled, and this has happened all over the country. So I just think it's important that you get out here, you do some research, and, you know, I'm going to post a link from Wikipedia, and though I do not consider Wikipedia as, you know, uh, a scholarly, you know, type of resource. However, if you look at some of the links that are posted on Wikipedia, you go to the pages and go to the bottom, you'll find some links to some very good information, but I just want to give you some generalized information. And, you know, most of these pages are not complete, and some of them are erroneous, which is why uh, some of the information can be erroneous. And this is why we encourage you to do independent research um, outside of that, but at least it can kind of give you and be used as a guiding point. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of things happening in this country, and I would be remiss if I did not talk about, you know, the massacre of the Native Americans. You know, they have had to deal with quite a bit as well. And, you know, there were some whites that were enslaved as well, and, you know, we'll talk about all of that as time goes on. But they were talking about, um, you know, some of the ethnic riots that have happened, you know, in this country. And, you know, go out there and research about the Harlem riot, the Watts riots, um, Chicago. They just burned Chicago down. And, you know, guys, learn your history. Understand your history. Um, You know, it's, it's just... Is interesting. So the first one that I actually want to talk about is the Hard Scrabble Riots, okay? And this happened in Providence, Rhode Island, you know, a couple of little boroughs or little cities or towns or what have you, you know, right around in the Providence, Rhode Island area. And, you know, there were a multitude of, you know, riots and wasn't just one or two isolated incidents, you know, happened over the years. But I'm going to talk a little bit about the one in 1824 and the one in 1831. And basically these were, you know, race riots. And during that time, the only people who were allowed to vote were um, white male landowners, okay? And interestingly enough, in that particular part of Rhode Island, they had one of the highest percentage of free blacks in that area. And what happened was um, working-class whites and poor whites attacked and destroyed, you know, some of the predominantly black neighborhoods, Um, in particular Addison Hollow and Snowtown. And this was in Providence, Rhode Island. So, again, you know, I'll repeat the names of those cities. That was Addison Hollow and Snowtown. And, you know, these two predominantly black areas were attacked 
And, you know, like I said, there were quite a few free blacks that lived there, and they had moved there to establish themselves and to create a better life for themselves, you know, to prosper economically as well as socially. And what happened was on October 18, 1824, um, a, a white mob, you know, and that's what it was, you know, it was domestic terrorism, it was mob action, a white mob decided to attack a group of black men who refused to exit the inside sidewalk as they were walking by. You know, they were in, going in opposite directions, and they wanted the black men to step off the sidewalk so that the white men could pass by, you know, um, uninterrupted, if you will. And the black men refused. They absolutely refused um, to get off the sidewalk, to move from the sidewalk. So what happened was they were attacked. And, you know, the perpetrators, you know, they claimed that they went into that part of town because it was, a, you know, alleged to have been a seedy part of town. And they claimed that they were attacking businesses of ill repute. You know, so they had, you know, brothels in that area. They had saloons. Um, you know, they were claiming that the blacks in that particular area were corrupt and, you know, crime-ridden and, you know, the stereotypes, you know. And so they claimed that that's what they were destroying. They were, you know, that those people and those businesses were corrupting their families and destroying their moral values. Now, does that sound familiar oh, to yeah, me? That, that sounds like Ronald Reagan's, um, Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. You know, it's, it's, it's familiar. And this is what we're trying to impress upon you guys, that it's the same old rhetoric that is, con- you know, continuously being, you know, perpetuated and being espoused. And we need for you to understand that because we fall for it every time. Hook, line, and sinker is time to stop challenge it, criticize it, critique it, and give it back. Set the facts straight. Uh, I wouldn't say we all fall for it. Some folks fall well, for I'm, it. Well, I'm talking in others. general. Right. You know, okay. <laughs> you know, but, you know, yes. I mean, you know, we know, because we didn't know we wouldn't be here talking about it today. You yeah. know, but you know, this is why we're trying to educate you so that you can see it's the same thing over and over. When they say history repeats itself, yes, it does. It really does. And so we're bringing this to your attention because, you know, it's one particular incident that I can't wait to get to because this is not written in the history books. And for many of these people and many of these situations, they paid, they were some of the, you know, victims and the descendants of the victims. Some of them were paid reparations, some were not. But, again, you know, we're not here to talk about reparations today, but I encourage you to do your research on these matters. But going back to this here, again, they said that, you know, these, you know, corrupt Negroes, freed Negroes, and in some cases wealthy Negroes, were corrupting their family values and, you know, corrupting their morality. And out of that incident, you know, it was well over 20 homes um, destroyed. Only one white person was found guilty. 
in that particular situation. Now, there's a lot more information out there about it, but I don't have the type of time to do it. But also we want to encourage you guys to go out there and do your research. I'm going to talk about Snowtown because I mentioned that. And in Snowtown, basically in 1831, uh, a black man shot and killed a white sailor because the white sailor basically was throwing stones and rocks at the man's house. And, again, another domestic terrorist mob went after this man and, you know, they formed and targeted the blacks in that neighborhood. And, basically, this governor had to call out the militia. And the militia ended up killing four white rioters, okay? But, you know, ironically, the day before these riots broke out, the chief justice, William Spear, he basically, you know, contributed to an editorial and called blacks, and I quote, naturally vicious and wicked, end quote, okay, Mm -hmm. and claiming that, you know, the reason why the hard scrabble riots, and this was actually the reason why there were hard hard scrabble riots was because, you know, those people, those people meaning the blacks, were on the wrong side of town and they were criminal elements. And again, he quoted, naturally vicious and wicked, end quote. And this is what we hear on a continuous basis even now. You know, and this is why, you know, um, it's important for you all to understand history and to go back. The same rhetoric is being put out there now. And it's important for you to know and you understand what's happening. And, you know, Nate in the chat room said, you know, riots have been happening here since the country's founding. And as I think about it, it was a riot that inspired independence. So you're absolutely correct, Nate. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. And then, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, um, and, you know, there, you know, some of us don't, don't realize, you know, just, um, particularly with slave rebellions, like there's a long history of slave rebellions, like, and you know there's some people who, you know, even even like people who like the the boys, for example, was somehow under the misguided notion that there were black people who were better off during slavery. Black people in slavery didn't know that, <laughs> not from the right. number of rebellions, you know, that not from the number of rebellions that were attempted. Now, a lot of those were put down, but that didn't stop right. us. You okay, know what I mean? you know what? I'm going to make that. I'm going to make that part of the confronting and destroying myth series. We're going to talk about slave rebellions. Well, no, slave apathy. It was slave contentment. It wasn't apathy. Yeah. It was contentment, according to all these other people. It wasn't oh, yeah, that we didn't care. It was that we were happy. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm gonna. We're gonna put that as part of the series, and we'll do the research, and that will be part of that particular series. And this is what you know. When I talk to people like Raina, we'll be on the phone, and you know, we just start brainstorming. This is how we come up with some of the topics for you guys, and it's some really good stuff coming up. You know, wait, wait until March Madness. That should be hilarious. But anyway, <laughs> so you know, we talked about the hard scrabble riots, and so now we're gonna move on, and now I want to talk about the Cincinnati riots. And, you know, again, you know, there were multiple riots. And so, again, I don't want, you know, to make it seem as though 
um, you know, it was only one or two riots and make it seem like it's, you know, not a big deal. It is a big deal. And there were multiple riots. And the riots are still going on today. You know, they're categorized a little different in some areas. But, you know, they're still, you know, going on today. And basically, you know, with the Cincinnati riots, Again, it was another race riot, and, you know, there were multiple ones that took place in 1829, 1836, 1841, and what was happening in Cincinnati, you know, they had some free blacks, but they also had runaway slaves in that area as well. And, you know, that history, you know, is really, really interesting. But what happened was a crowd, a mob of over 200 whites, you know, now, mind you, these were poor and working-class whites as well as Irish immigrants and they attacked the blacks because they were competing for jobs with blacks does this sound familiar to you guys look at what's happening now look at the unemployment rates look at some of the attacks that are coming across you know about affirmative action and EEOC and I cannot wait to do part three of this series two weeks from now we're going to talk about affirmative action we're going to talk about special set-asides. We're going to talk about equal opportunity. We're going to talk about equal, equal employment opportunities. We're going to talk about all of that and put it in a proper context and, you know, show you guys who benefits from it. So if you want to go out and look, you'll see that I've already posted for the next two shows. I've already put together the storyboards. The links are out there. Um, please join us because this is a great series. But going back to the Cincinnati riots, so basically they attacked the blacks and because they felt they had to compete for jobs. Like competition was a bad thing, you know, and they they feared that the blacks in that particular area, in that city, they were becoming too powerful and taking jobs away from the white citizens. Now, the interesting thing is is that, you know, that's even happening now. That's happening now in which um, if you pay attention, um, you'll hear the rhetoric in which, you know, they'll say, well, they're not even qualified. You know, how did they get this job? It had to be affirmative action and, you know, totally discounting you know, the person's education and their experience, totally discounting that the person, you know, competed fairly for the positions. And I'm talking more in a modern sense when I'm talking, you know, in this respect. But, you know, again, I'm just trying to contrast this for you guys so that you can see that some of these arguments, you know, have been played out time and time again. It's important that you understand that. Okay, so... Mm -hmm. In this particular incident with the Cincinnati riots, we're still on that, basically, you know, they destroyed property and forced the blacks out. And this is the interesting part about it. Many of the blacks that were forced out migrated to Ontario, Canada, and that's where they went to establish Wilberforce County. And that is a really interesting um, history about blacks in Canada. Um, You want to go and look up a fun fact? Look up... Africans, Indians, hockey in Canada, you will be surprised. So, again, Indians, Africans, hockey in Canada. You know, um, the blacks in, in Canada 
have a very rich history. I would encourage you guys to go out there and research it. I actually want to do a show on black Canadians and also want to do a show on um, black Germans as well. Maybe that's something we'll schedule in the future because a lot of people don't know that um, there were blacks in the Holocaust, you know, and including some American blacks that were captured. So anyway, moving on to the um, Cincinnati riots again. And basically the police, the military did next to nothing to defend and protect the blacks. You know, um, lane rebels, which were seminary students, basically they sympathized with the blacks. And the blacks and their white allies, um, you know, they were attacked. You know, they attacked the white allies as well. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting um, how that played out. But you got to remember during that time we had the black laws and the black codes, and they were being strictly enforced, as well as, you know, some of the runaway slave um, laws as well. And even though blacks were not allowed to attend school, if they owned property, they still had to pay taxes towards the school system. They still collected taxes from them, but their children could not attend the schools. And they were not allowed to receive public assistance either. Yet the federal public policies were in place. You know, and that's why I say we have to talk about public policies. And, you know, basically what happens, you know, again, putting it in context, with the federal laws, they're put in place and it's supposed to be, you know, equitably applied to everyone. But with the Southern strategy, the way that it's pushed down is pushed down as states' rights. And that is how they are allowed to discriminate against, you know, certain people and so and to determine eligibility. So, you know, I get, I want you guys to go and research that. So again, they were not allowed to receive public assistance. You know, that's deep. You know, they also were not allowed to serve in the military. And here is the kicker. Here is the kicker for this. In order to move into Cincinnati and other cities in Ohio, but in particular Cincinnati the minute that blacks, you know, um, the black, the minute that blacks moved into a city or moved into Cincinnati, they had to post a five hundred dollar bail bond, you know, kind of like a retainer for just in case they committed a crime. And with that five hundred dollar bail bond, they had to get two white signatures or signators to sign off to say that they were worthy of living there, you know. And so, um, you know, I just find, you know, all of that interesting. So I want you guys to go out and, you know, research that and to get, you know, a better understanding as to what was happening and, you know, what was happening in that particular area and, you know, what, you know, brought all of that about. So it's important um, for you all to get an understanding of that particular history and where that came about. Now, it was something that I actually wanted to share with you, and again, this is about what was happening in Cincinnati. So for those of you who aren't familiar with this, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe was from Cincinnati, and she witnessed all of this happening 
you know, as she was growing up. And she wrote, you know, a bunch of letters and journals. And she's also the woman that wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Okay, and again, you know, the abolitionist movement, you know, I'm trying to pique your interest here. Go out and actually read about this, um, you know, this, this rich history. You know, I'm not saying rich as in it was a wonderful history, but, you know, it's powerful. And you need to understand, you know, what's happening here. And basically what a lot of the whites did in this particular riot you know, situation, they went to um, basically to the black, you know, well, to the newspaper. The name of the newspaper was The Philanthropist. And this was um, published by James Burney. And basically, you know, they were warning him to stop publication of this paper. And when he didn't, you know, another, again, mob of angry white men broke into the office and tried to destroy his printing press. And, but he ended up printing again. He resumed the publication. And on July 30th, you know, and what year was this? That was July 30th of 1836. Um, several hundred men went on a rampage against him, against the paper, against abolitionists, and the community of free blacks. And, you know, uh, Basically, they said the two main fears lay behind the attempt to silence the discussion of slavery in Cincinnati and the fear of offending slave owners across the river whose money was a major engine of the city's prosperity and the fear that the abolitionists would make the city's African-American population less tractable. So, again, um, they burned down, you know, um, establishments where blacks and whites were known to mingle together. But I'll post a link about this a little bit later, and it talks about Harriet Beecher Stowe a little bit and um, gives you an abstract to the letters, so talking about the slavery riots in Cincinnati. So, you know, I thought that was a very interesting piece of history there. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting. So we're going to move on to the next set, and basically I want to talk about the Philadelphia riots, you know, the anti-abolitionist riots, the pro-slavery riots, um, you know, the Lombard Street riots. And, again, this took place over a number of years, but I want to address what happened in 1829, 1834, and 1842. Um, I think it's important that, you know, we understand you know, again, with the different cities. And so we, so people won't be under the delusion that these were isolated incidents, you know. Um, Actually, I was going to say, Kim, um, I recently learned that there, I didn't know this, and, you know, I'm originally from Baltimore. I didn't know this, but there was a riot in 1861 on Pratt Street. Yeah. 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 Oh, when I list the link, when I put this Wikipedia link up later, it shows all of that. It's just that we don't mm-hmm. have the time to go through all of them. But, yeah, you know, maybe learn your history, you guys. You know, there's probably a riot, you know, close to you. You probably walked past or walked through, you know, an area in which there were riots. And you just didn't know. Learn your local history. Learn your local history is important. You know, but um, basically with the, you know, Philadelphia riots, basically in that area, <laughs> you know, the gang race riots and, you know, some of the white mob activists, if you will, um, 
they felt that there were too many blacks and foreigners were moving into the city. And what's interesting about this particular piece of history, and, you know, I tried to get a, give a little variety here so that, you know, again, you know, I wanted each one to be different, but I wanted some variety here so it wouldn't be the same story over and over. But with some of the history in Philadelphia, it was white female abolitionists that were speaking out and calling for emancipation, in particular Fannie White um, Durismont and Angelina Grimke. And, you know, what was interesting is during that time period, you know, again, you know, women were not allowed to speak publicly. They were strongly discouraged from doing that, and they certainly were not encouraged to speak on controversial subjects such as slavery. And, and then on top of it, they had to ner- the nerve to speak in front of what they considered a promiscuous audience. And I know some people are like, promiscuous audience? What do you mean by that? Um, the definition of a promiscuous audience in that particular context is a mixed crowd. So when I say mixed, I'm talking about men and women. Men and women, and, you know, take that back to the Bible in which they're telling the women not to speak to a man. It's just, just you know, again, you know, just read, honey. Just go out there and read. So, you know, they were speaking in front of mixed audiences of men and women. And, oh, I've got to give a shout-out to the Quakers. They were very instrumental. And, you know, um, with the abolitionists and, you know, with, you know, anti-slavery um, rhetoric and helping, you know, some of the runaway slaves. So I want you guys to go out there and learn that history as well. It's very important. You know, I always said, you know, if all hell breaks loose, y'all may as well be somewhere milking me a cow over in Quaker country. Because at least I know I'll eat. I won't have the Internet. That'll hurt for a couple of weeks, but I think I'll get over it. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. But in this particular case, um, there were several hundred men and boys that attacked the blacks. And it just got so outrageous. It got so out of hand that there was a street fight of four to 500 people, whites and blacks, just out in the middle of the street duking it out. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, again, like I said, you know, there were, you know, quite a few women, you know, white women involved in this. And basically, you know, I spoke about Angela Grimke, and basically I'm going to read a little bit of this here. She was the daughter of a prominent South Carolina slaveholding family and had grown up on the family's plantation. And basically, they felt as though, you know, someone with her type of background speaking out against slavery and calling for immediate emancipation, that it was sensational, you know, and it created, you know, and when I say sensational, I'm not talking about in a good way, you know, and, you know, it was just, you know, just looking at all of this, and I'm going to post this article, but basically here it says, you know, um, the Philadelphia riot is noteworthy for several reasons. One is that it dramatically demonstrates the level of hostility abolitionism provoked. And another is Grimke's central role in opening up the public sphere to women, you know, and it was her example that inspired Abby Kelly Foster and later Lucy Stone to become abolition speakers. And she also helped inspire hundreds and then thousands of middle-class northern women to join anti-slavery societies to circulate the 
petitions to raise funds to write anti-slavery poems and polemics and contribute to the movement in other ways. These women not only played key roles in the struggle for emancipation, they also provided much of the leadership for the new women's rights movement in the 1840s and 1850s. And so that's why, you know, I wanted to bring that up, you know, sometimes to make sure that everybody is kind of incorporated in this talk today and that, you know, you can kind of understand I wanted you to, wanted to show women's roles um, in this as well. And, you know, um, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Um, you know, again, with the rioting, you know, um, like I said, they had a big old street fight about four or 500 people, you know, buildings were torn down, uh, inmates, you know, were beaten. And, you know, um, basically it took, you know, the police and constables, you know, quite a, quite a, you know, time to kind of quiet things down. And what happened is they assembled the very next night and they basically tore down a black church in a neighboring house. And then they attacked, you know, some more um, black residents and, well, you know, tearing up their homes. And it's, it's just, wow, you know, what happened here. It's important, like I said, you guys go out here and read this. You know, they assembled again and tore down, you know, another church. And the blacks started, you know, gathering together to defend themselves. And, you know, basically, um, the blacks, you know, they had to run. They had to run. And 31 homes and two churches were destroyed. And, you know, a black man by the name of Stephen James was killed. And basically, um, they voted to reimburse the sufferers. So some type of reparations um, took place in that particular city. And basically they said, you know, they weren't able to put the fires out, that the fire, you know, to about this um, riot, not a literal fire, but, you know, it went about for about a year. And on occasion, you know, fighting would take place. Now, this is the part that I found very interesting. Um, basically here is talking about, the, um, a Cuban slave by the name of Juan. They didn't give Juan's last name, but he murdered his slave master. And basically, um, the mob got angry again, and the fighting started again. And it's just, um, you know, the blacks basically, you know, armed themselves, and they were barricading themselves. And the mayor lectured the blacks, you know, you know, basically made them leave, made them leave. And so they had to flee the city. They had to flee the city. So, guys, go out there and find out about that because, you know, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's good reading. It's good reading. It's beautiful information. Um, and like I said, it's important that you all find out about that. And, again, you know, I have to do some research on Cuban slaves in America. I know that they had a slave trade in Cuba. That I knew about. But I was not familiar with Cuban slaves being sold in America. So, you know, that's going to be some interesting research. That's primarily for myself. But, you know, maybe we will do a show on, um, you know, other types of slaves. So, you know, the Cuban slaves, the um, – 
Mexican slaves, um, Filipino slaves, Indian slaves, even some of the white slaves, you know, in particular Irish people. And there's a real interesting history with Irish immigrants and blacks as well as um, Italian immigrants and blacks. Um, just go back and do some research on when Mussolini invaded Ethiopia. You'll be amazed. So um, we're going to move on to another type of insurrection. I see my time is winding up here. we got 57 minutes left, and I wanted to make some more announcements at the end of the show, so we're going to kind of speed this up a little bit. Um, I want to talk about something that you all probably have never heard of. I did not hear about this until this year, you know, and when I found out about it, I was absolutely amazed. So, and I posted about it. When I really started researching it, I posted about it, you know, a few months ago. So if you go through my Facebook page uh, and do a search, you'll be able to find information on the Wilmington Insurrection of 1898. And, again, the Wilmington. Yeah, yeah, W-I-L-M-I-N-G-T-O-N, Wilmington Insurrection. This took place in North Carolina. Okay, now, the reason why this is extremely important, and again, they do not talk about this particular issue um, in the history books, ever, and that was done on purpose, but the reason why this is important, this is the only coup d'etat that took place in U.S. history, the only one. This is the only time on U.S. soil that a local government has been overthrown. It never happened before, and it never happened since. You know, I mean, they're trying now, but that's another story. But this is important, people. This is extremely important. I have some wonderful links to share with you guys a little bit later, but, um, you know, some of the insight, you know, about this particular city is that in 19, I'm sorry, not 19, 1898, um, Wilmington was an up-and-coming, you know, thriving, sound city in North Carolina. And interestingly enough, two-thirds of the population was black, and they were prosperous. They owned barbershops, restaurants, you know, uh, they were tailors, they owned drugstores, you know, they were firemen and police. They were just doing well. And blacks and white existed peacefully, separately, but peacefully, right? You know, you know how we talk about, you know, you cross the railroad tracks and it's a different story. But, yeah, no, but they were able to live together in peace, you know, and everything was Fine, until the election of 1896. This is important. Pay attention. In 1896, the white Democrats lost control of state politics. They were no longer in control. Now, Democrats of that day are different than the Democrats of today. So we have to put everything in its historical context. Okay, so the white Democrats lost control of, you know, state and local politics. And so what happened was, you know, uh, a group of white populists and African-American um, Republicans, they won control. They won control of the state. And basically the white Democrats, you know, were angry, you know, because they lost control. And basically... Um, 
Daniel Schick. You know, he was a Democratic Party leader, and he stated, I quote, it will be the meanest, vilest, dirtiest campaign since 1876, end quote. And with that particular election, um, it ended Reconstruction in the South. And so basically what they did was they exploited um, this alleged fear that white women have of black men, okay? And then they were using the threat of lynching against black men. So, again, fear tactics, which are still being played out in today's politics, you know. Um, you know, you all have seen some of these pictures and postings of, and, you know, articles about people attempting to lynch other folks. And I have to go back and research, but I posted an article a while ago about this um, young man from Kenya that was allegedly lynched in New Jersey. I have to go back and um, pick that back up because I kind of let that slide. I wanted to keep up with that. Well, anyway, basically, um, you know, a Georgia feminist, you know, white Georgia feminist gave a speech and, you know, the Wilmington paper printed it. And in her speech, she said she supported the lynching of black men for having inappropriate relationships with white women, you know. And it's just, you know, the whole situation that happened was, you know, racial tensions increased. Um, it just caused the divide. It caused the divide, it caused the us versus them mentality, and we've talked about that. And when, you know, the African or well, the black voters turned out in large numbers for the election of 1898, and the blacks won, that created a problem. Does that sound familiar to any of you guys? Large black, um, you know, turnout. Blacks winning the election, you know, people getting upset, angry. You know, again, history repeats itself. And white Democrats, you know, who favored white supremacy, you know, they stuffed the ballot box and won the election. But two days, you know, after that particular election, um, violence, you know, erupted, and that's when they had the riot, the Wilmington race riot. And basically they had about 500 men that um, basically, well, it started out with 500 men, and it grew to about 2,000 people, okay? And they, there was a, a black publisher. They set his office on fire, and then the tension between the blacks and the whites exploded. And, you know, at that point, you know, it just it got out of hand. And... Interestingly enough, you know, part of the mob of whites, you know, they were, you know, preachers, lawyers, bankers, merchants, and they felt and believed that they were asserting their rights as citizens, you know. And, you know, basically it was reported that 25 blacks had been killed. However, you know, it was suspected that actually hundreds of blacks had been killed and their bodies dumped into a river. And in most recent, you know, years, they've been using metal detectors to go out because they believe that there were mass graves as well and that a lot of blacks were buried in those mass graves. So anyway, they ran the blacks out of the city and basically blacks were banished 
from the city of Wilmington. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, in North Carolina, you know, more restrictions were placed on African-American voters. Does that sound familiar to you? (laughs) You know, are you all paying attention to the politics in North Carolina now and what's happening over there? And, um, you know, it's it's just the whole thing, um, you know, again, they illegally seized the power from the elected government. And... You know, this has not been um, reported. And what's interesting is, you know, the infantry and the naval reserves were told to stop the riot or to quiet it, quiet it down, and they used rapid-fire weapons to kill several black men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, you know, the black and white residents, you know, they were appealing for help after the riot, and President William McKinley did not respond. And more than 2,000 blacks left the city and turned it from a majority black city to a majority white city. You know, and so during the 1990s, um, you know, there were, you know, basically different activists that gathered together to discuss these events more openly and try to figure out what happened you know, in that particular city and what happened. And basically in the year 2000, the state legislature authorized the commission to produce a history of the events and to evaluate the economic impact and cost to black residents with consideration of reparation for descendants of victims. The report was completed in 2006. And I'll be posting that link a little bit later so that you guys can, you know, find out more about it. But it's really important. I mean, this is a big piece of history that was never reported. You know, and it's still hush. But what's interesting is a filmmaker by the name of Alan Weiss um, created a film. He made a film um, about this um, particular city, and the name of the film is called A Reckoning. You know, and... I'll post some information about that as well. And it's interesting, you know, the the group of, you know, white supremacists, if you will, they were led by a Civil War luminary, Colonel Alfred Waddell. So what does that say to you? You know, um, the blacks that were chased out of the city, you know, they had to go, they had to run to the swamps to hide, you know, hiding out in swamps, and it was cold. So, um, and and the thing is, it went unprosecuted. Unprosecuted, and they didn't put any of this in the history books. You know, so, you know, I'm going to post this information. And, you know, it's just, you know, really interesting. And, you know, again, you know, the white supremacists, they were also called red shirts then. And they were basically taking back our city. Does that sound familiar to you? So, you know, you know, they're taking back the country now, but back then they were taking back the city. You know, so, you know, the whole thing is, um, you know, Brown Beasley, if you are, you're going to be all right. Um, you know, the whole thing is, you know, really interesting. And, you know, I want you to go back and I want you guys to read about that history and find out, you know, what happened and how it, you know, came across. And 
Man, you know, again, on November 10th is when they overthrew the elected local government and forced the black and white officials to resign and ran them out of town. So it's important that you guys understand that. Um, You know, it's just, wow. It says here, quote, unquote, from a, a woman named Bertha Todd, she was a teacher, and she was talking about this particular issue, and basically she said, quote, some of the elderly African Americans told my stepfather that the Cape Fear River was running red with blood, end quote. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, and they said, you know, black bodies were floating all through the river. You know, we've we've gone through a lot in this country. Um and we just want the you know, the truth to come out. You know, a lot of this has been, you know, covered, a lot of this is not reported and you know yeah, we don't again, have memorials for this stuff. A lot no, of it. We, we don't. do. And if anything we might get a plaque, maybe. Exactly. We might have a plaque exactly. where some of these things happen, but mostly not. Exactly. You know, consider this show a memorial, I guess. You know, that's how I see it. Um, you know, and I'm going to post an article about the panel that I was telling you guys about that, you know, basically was investigating this particular issue. And so, again, they were using, you know, metal detection devices over suspected sites, you know, in search of belt buckles, shoe nails, and other evidence that may suggest a mass grave. And then if they find something, they're going to excavate it. So I need to do more research on that as well. Um, And basically there was never an official study or inquest about the riot. It was covered up immediately, you know, so – you know, wow, this is just absolutely amazing. And, you know, I, I want to share that with you guys. You know, I want to share that with you. I'll post that a little bit later on. And the reason why I talked about that first is because, again, that was a prosperous, prosperous, you know, black city. And, you know, again, it was unheard of what happened here. Like I said, the only coup d'etat in U.S. history. You know, and but black it's people just are vicious. Black people are criminal. Black people right. are violent. I mean, we're. I mean, black people are just terrible people. I mean, <laughs> right? Hey, that's the story I heard. And you know, the reason why you know I wanted to tell you guys about that because it was wasn't a part of history. A lot of people didn't know about, but it's actually a great segue to talk about Black Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, this it's was another, yes, yeah. this was another thriving um, well-to-do black city. You know, blacks owned stores, hotels, banks, newspapers, banks. you know, just doing extremely well. And what's interesting is, you know, during that time frame, uh, um, 1921, membership in the Ku Klux Klan was rapidly spreading through America. And, you know, interestingly enough, with the election of Obama, um, President Obama, um, a lot of these separatist nationalists and hate groups, memberships grew, you know, some of these militias. So, you know, I want you guys to do some research about that as well. That's why I'm like, sound familiar? And what happened was, you know, this particular riot took place um, over the Memorial Day weekend. 
and it was because a report in two white newspapers that claimed that a black youth attempted to rape a white woman in the elevator. Okay, and I'm looking for the information here because I had the woman's name because um, I wanted to share that. You know, let's share her legacy as well. But, um, you know, it's just important, you know, that we understand this and we know what happened. But anyway, going back to this, you know, it was reported that a white woman was attacked. And what was told a little bit later is that the young man, when he got on the elevator, he mistakenly stepped on the woman's foot. You know, and so, you know, the rumors, you know how the rumors and gossip, you know, how how it spreads. And a lynch mob was formed to hang the young man. And basically, armed black men rushed to basically protect the young man. They went to the police station to prevent the lynching because, you know, they were, you know, trying to confront um, the young man. And, you know, again, shots were fired you know, and some white people were killed. And so then violent, you know, it just exploded. And basically, you know, there were thousands of whites that, you know, basically went to the black community and started killing men and women, looting the stores and homes and burning them down. But we're the looters. We're the refugees, right? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yep. So anyway, so yeah, you know, um, some of the blacks, they were saying that the police, some of the police officers joined the mob and that machine guns were being fired into the community and that planes, you know, dropped sticks of dynamite, you know, this is, you know, what happened, you know, and when the National Guard, you know, got there, they arrested the blacks and not the white rioters. You know, and about four, five thousand, four to five thousand, you know, men and women were held in jail before being released. No whites were arrested. You know, and they were openly boasting about what they did. Thirty-five city blocks were burned to the ground, wiping out wealth, wiping out businesses, wiping out homes. You know, approximately twenty-five to three hundred. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, there are photos, I mean, you know, not necessarily of what happened in Tulsa, but, I mean, you know, photos in various cities of people, you know, posing next to burned-out homes of, of black people that they've terrorized, you know, smiling right. and taking pictures like they're, like, you know, like they're, you know, they're at Gettysburg or, you know, at a memorial or something or on a family vacation. You know, these were right. mementos. That people have, exactly. and there are children, and there and there are often sometimes children, little white children right. standing out in front of these these places, you know. Exactly, that's true. And you know, in this particular city in Tulsa, you know, a lot of the wealth came from oil. You know, it was it was a very industrious time, and. Um, you know, the young man that was getting on the elevator, I found his name. His name was Dick Rowland, and he was there. Um, I believe he, you know, he was there at that building because he was working for this um, white shoe shine parlor. And basically, um, there was a colored restroom at the top of the building, and the young man was trying to go up there to use the restroom. And um, basically, you know, the woman. 
Her name was Sarah Page. I knew I would find it. Um, her name was Sarah Page, and she was about 17 years old. And what happened was Dick Rowland violated, you know, one of the unspoken Jim Crow rules, meaning he was not supposed to get on that elevator with that young white girl or at least wait until a crowd was there. And he mistakenly stepped on her foot. She screamed. He got scared and ran. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's what precipitated, you know, this here. And it's just, you know, just go back and read. Just go back and read and, um, you know, find out. But really the the truth of the the matter is, like, like a lot of other, you know, of, of these stories where black towns were destroyed or where black towns were annexed into other towns, it wasn't a matter of what the black people did. It was what the black people had economically. They were just looking right. for an excuse to right. come in and destroy You know, it. jealousy, envy. Yeah, jealousy, envy, all of that, you know. And so... You know, it's just important for you guys to go back and read and find out, you know, what happened and what precipitated that, you know. And, again, they were using, you know, just some of the stereotypes as to why, you know, uh, some of these rapes took place, you know, uh, basically defending the chastity of white womanhood from the sexual advances of black men, Um, you know, hatred, racism of black and black advancement. Um, you know, jealousy, you know, you know, don't be a prosperous community, especially if they're experiencing, some of the poor whites are experiencing um, poverty. You know, that's, is, again, that's why I've talked about, you know, um, with some of these issues. They pit one community against the other, and this history repeating itself, it's important that you guys understand this. Um, so, yeah, you know, so, you know, we're going to talk about Rosewood now. It's important that we talk about Rosewood. This was a very, very important incident. And this took place in Florida, for those of you that didn't know. Um, and, again, it was a prospering black city. And this riot took place in 1923, and it was two years after Black Wall Street. Okay? And basically, um you know, again, you had, it was a race riot. You had angry whites who assumed that a white woman had been sexually assaulted by a black man, you know, and, you know, a lot of blacks owned their own homes and their land back then. And, you know, um, this was named for um, red cedar, that was growing nearby, and this particular cedar was cut and shipped to New York to become pencils, and this is how the community acquired its wealth, you know. And so when the cedar ran out, you know, they had um, white flight because there was no more money to be made, so the whites left. And so, you know, the blacks that remained, and it became, you know, a predominantly black um, city, Basically, they stayed, and they started working at the sawmill, and the women did domestic work and, you know, worked at different businesses. And there was actually a black-owned naval store. Um, so, you know, do some, you know, research on that as well. But, you know, there were stores owned and businesses owned by quite a few blacks um, in that area. And apparently 
there were tensions that had been rising for a few years, and basically in 1920, you know, um, four black men were lynched. You know, they were removed from jail after being arrested for allegedly raping a white woman, and they were lynched. Um, Later on that year, five blacks were killed, as well as two whites, following a dispute over voting rights. You know, and during that incident, um, you know, a black community was destroyed. Twenty-five homes were destroyed, two churches, and a Masonic lodge. You know, and, you know, there were multiple um, issues that took place and that happened. And basically, you know, as the the records indicate, it was a perfect storm. And basically, um, again, you know, a black man allegedly assaulted a black woman, and then, you know, a black man with an attitude, a black man with an attitude and lots of friends who had guns, you know, um, you know, they were upset about that. Um, they were, you know, the white mob, and the white mob was, you know, um, jealous because the blacks in Rosewood were doing better than a lot of the whites that lived in the blackwood, the backwoods um, around them. And so, um, you know, it's, it's just amazing, you know, you all need to go out there and read and find out um, what happened. And it's just, it's, wow. You know, there's a cemetery called Riviera Beach, and apparently it's filled with Rosewood folks. Um, you know, um, I'm going to post an interview from the last survivor of Rosewood, and she passed away in June 2010, but, you know, she talks about what happened and, you know, remembered, you know, what happened. But, you know, basically, you know, it was just, you know, it was just interesting. But, you know, in January, and this happened in January, it was cold outside. In January, the armed whites gathered together um, by the evening of January 4th they attacked the carrier house and, you know, two white men were killed and several others wounded and a black woman, Sarah Carrier, she was killed as well as, you know, others inside the house. And basically the residents had to flee into the swamp. You know, a church was burned to the ground and several unprotected homes were, you know, burned to the ground. On January 5th, about two to 300 whites from surrounding areas um, attacked the city again. Um, the government, I mean the government, the governor was notified and the sheriff reported that he fears that, um, you know, basically nothing could really be done to contain this. Um, you know, it was just a bunch of things. On January 6th, basically a train evacuates the refugees to Gainesville, Florida. Now, why are they called refugees? I don't like that word. You know, on, you know, January 7th, about 100 to 150 whites returned to Rosewood and burned the remaining structures. On January 17th, um, you know, a black man is convicted of stealing cattle, and he was removed from his cell and lynched. You know, on February 11th, a grand jury was convened to investigate the Rosewood riot on February 15th. Four days later, 
the grand jury found insufficient evidence to prosecute. So, you know, that kind of gives you some insight as to what was happening and what took place. I'm going to post a video about the growth of Rosewood and what happened and what was going on. So, you know, it's, it's been a real interesting history. You know, and again, you know, we're encouraging you guys to go out there and to do some research and some reading on your own um, as to what took place and what transpired. Uh, okay, I made pretty good time. We have, you know, let's see here, 29 minutes left. So we can talk a little bit about Oregon. I posted a link last week or the week before, and the title of it was, you know, Why Aren't There More Black People in Oregon? And, you know, it was a hidden history, you know, behind that. And, you know, again, with racism and white supremacy happening there and just, um, you know, you know, people being lynched, lynch mobs. Um, and what I find interesting is, you know, in one newspaper, it described the lynch mob as quiet and orderly. You know, and that the lynching was not an unnecessary disturbance of the peace. Isn't that interesting? You know, and, um, you know, I'm going to post this link as well as others um, after the show. But Portland, you know, you know, had a long reputation of being one of the most prejudiced cities in the West. You know, the blacks were basically limited to work on the railroads or as domestics in homes and hotels. And basically, um, only about 2,000 blacks lived in the city um, before the war. You know, it, you know this, this whole thing, you know, what we've had to deal with, you know, activities of the Ku Klux Klan, blacks were prohibited from even entering the city, you know, and basically, you know, in the 1920s, they had up to 200,000, you know, um, Oregon members of the Ku Klux Klan, which is very interesting. That's why you won't catch me in any of those box states up there. Because, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure you all saw that article that was posted about a month or two ago about how some of these white nationalists and separatists are buying land like crazy up there in the Dakotas and turning them into all-white cities. And in one of the articles, it was a black man that was um, married to a white woman, and I think he was the only black left in the city, and he refused to leave. He said that was his home, and he wasn't leaving. So I, I want to keep yeah, up I with that. Yeah, I think I saw an article of um, some some Native American women, um, some um, older, maybe middle-aged uh, Native American women. They had stolen the flag, the Confederate flag, right. uh, from some, you know, I think maybe from the guy who's trying to make one of the cities up there all white. So, right, yeah. exactly, exactly. So you know, it was just interesting, you know, um, how that went about. But um, over in Oregon, you know, basically, you know, blacks were you know segregated, of course, and we're going to talk about that actually. Um, in part two next week, when we talk about redlining, we're going to talk a little bit about redlining and, again, urban planning. We're going to talk about interstate um, planning, gentrification. It's just a real interesting history there. But um, basically, 
you know, the blacks were put in the least desirable, you know, units um, and blamed for and blamed unjustly for creating a climate of crime. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, when the schools were integrated, you know, as well as, you know, recreational facilities and churches, you know, um, you know, the blacks were able to form groups that helped to protect them and expand their rights like we do now, you know, and we're mocked and ridiculed for having groups out here that, you know, expose and challenge and critique, you know, a lot of these policies. And, you know, when the war was over, you know, this, again, this was World War One. Um, basically, you know, a lot of the jobs that were available at the shipyard, you know, they were no longer available, and um, the civic leaders were ordering the blacks to leave, you know, but many of them stayed, you know, and made Oregon their home. And then the flood came in 1948, you know, destroying the complex where many of them worked, I mean, many of them lived. And basically um, 25% of the people that were left homeless were African Americans or blacks. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and they had been termed undesirable, you know, and so... You know, it's really interesting, you know, history. Um, in the 1950s, the real estate industry revised its code of ethics. But in 1960, when over 10,000 blacks lived in a city, 73% of them were still huddled together in Albina. And basically, um, because of the way that they kind of corralled them into a certain part of the city, there's the Portland schools were as segregated as Alabama's. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? So, yeah, um, yeah you know, um, yeah. You know, so that's a little bit of the history here. You know, that was all that I prepared about, you know, the different riots. And, again, you know, there are so many out there. Like I say, you can go and look up about the watch riots. Um, you can go and look up, you know, information about the Tampa riots, Detroit riots. Buffalo had them in Milwaukee, even in Minneapolis on the north side, you know, um, in Plainfield, New Jersey. I've been up there. And, you know, just all over the place, you know, almost every city. I'm sure Riot was somewhere near you. Um, And it's just interesting how all of this, you know, took place and it's not taught. And, I mean, you know, we've had riots as recently as, you know, this year, even though they may not necessarily call it that. And when I say riots this year, I am not talking about the Zimmerman trial. That was not a riot. And, you know, we will not allow them to categorize it as such. That's not what it was. But, you know, go back and, you know, study your history. You know, um, you know, Beaumont, Texas, you know, had riots. East Boogie, also known as East St. Louis, for those of us from Illinois, we call it East Boogie. But, um, you know, the riots there, and I, oh, the Atlanta race riots. Now, that was interesting. Go and read that. That is a hoot. And when I say a hoot, it's just absolutely amazing. You must go out and, you know, research and find out about that. But, um, you know, again, find out about the anti-Italian riots, the anti-Chinese riots, you know, the anti-Filipino riots, you know, all of that, all of that, you know. So, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, We just want you to learn some history, honey. 
You know, we just want you to learn some history, go out here and be able to arm yourself with some knowledge. It's important that you know what's going on and what's happening in this country and what has happened in your history so that we will not repeat it. And when it does repeat, we'll recognize it and understand, you know, what's taking place. So with that being said, I just want to repeat a couple of announcements. And earlier, during the beginning of the show, I talked about the AAH conference, the African Americans for Humanism conference, that's taking place next year in Washington, D.C., on Saturday, February the 1st. You know, Mm -hmm. and the night before, Friday evenings, there's going to be some type of reception and dinner. And, again, this takes place in Washington, D.C., at the D.C. Lincoln Hall, which is located 921 Pennsylvania Avenue, southeast. Now, this one is taking place. And so that should be exciting. Let's see here. Ronnell Adams is speaking, Jamila Bay, Debbie Goddard, Aisha Goss, Mark Hatcher, Dr. Mark um, Sativo, Dr. Hutchinson is speaking, um, Anti-Intellect is speaking, Alex Jules, Anthony Penn, Dr. Penn, and Donald Wright. Donald Wright was just um, at it because I didn't see this the other day, but that is fantastic. So um, they'll be speaking, and, you know, guys, I definitely want you guys to check this out. It should be um, a lot of fun. It should be a lot of fun. I will be there. And I'm looking forward to it. And we want you guys to go out and look for us on Facebook, People of Color Beyond Faith. And we just introduced that to the general public on October 16th. So this is a new initiative. It's a new collective. And we're going to be doing educational outreach. We're planning online conferences and webcasts. We're going to have a physical conference in Los Angeles, California, next October. So we're giving you one year advance notice. Save your money up. But we'll also have the online conference, which will be free. And this is what we wanted to give back to you to show you our appreciation, and we understand not everybody can come to the physical conferences, and we're taking all of that into consideration, which is why it's a weekend. It's Valentine's Day weekend, so, you know, we want you to participate. It's going to be fed live to our YouTube channel, so, you know, we'll be answering your questions on YouTube as well as the Twitter handle, which is P, well, hashtag POC Beyond Chat, and our regular hashtag is POCBF. So find us on Twitter, follow us on Twitter, you can find us on Google+, as well as Facebook, and we've been posting links and information, it's more videos and more information to come. We'll have a webcast on November 24th. 2013, so, you know, in a few weeks, and on that webcast, um, you'll have myself, you'll have Dr. Hutchinson, you'll have Donald Wright, um, you'll have Raina, and, you know, several other people, and we'll be talking about issues that are pertinent to the secular community, and we'll be holding these webcasts every month, so look forward to seeing us every month, and You'll be able to ask questions via the hashtag or on YouTube. We'll address it. Um, You know, you're part of the conversation. We want you to know that you are a part of the conversation. We want to hear from you. 
We mm-hmm. definitely want to hear from you. And we want you to know how much we appreciate you and we understand, you know, what's going on out here and what you're going through because we're dealing with some of the same issues. So we're here. We're here for you. We look forward to hearing from you. We look forward to interacting with you, especially for some of you that have questions for some of us. Um, this is the way you will be able to interact with us, you know, personally. So, you know, this this is going to be a beautiful collaboration. Um, again, the online conference is Valentine's Day weekend. The physical conference is in October of 2014, and it will take place in Los Angeles, California, over a weekend. And more information is to come. We're putting together the panels, you know, the subject matter, um, and this is going to take place. You have one year. Save your money. So, Again, I know I'll definitely be at the AAH conference, and I'll definitely be at this particular conference. So you can look forward to seeing me. Um, and, you know, again, the National Day of Solidarity for Black Nonbelievers takes place the last Sunday in February of every year. Okay, so we've had three celebrations. 2014 will make the fourth celebration. And so we want you guys to get together. And, again, it can be something as simple as a couple of non-believers getting together to have a cup of coffee, maybe go out and have a meal, or if you want to do a day of service, you can go out and, you know, you can work with other civic groups or organizations in the area. Or you can put together, you know, um, we had a celebration last year, and, you know, we gave our leftimonials and, you know, had our little philosophical talk and debates. And the year before in Chicago, we went to the DuSabo Museum, which is the largest African-American museum in the country. And so, you know, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do this year um, as well. So we're giving you plenty of time to organize and to think about it. And, again, it doesn't have to be an organized event. I want to stress that. So it's, it's so just I was going to say, I was just yeah. going to say, no, I was gonna, no, no, I have a suggestion. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say, since um, since they can reenact slavery on um, on school field trips, why don't you guys reenact Nat Turner's Rebellion? <laughs> or Shay's Rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, yeah. it's just a joke. Oh, but, yeah. Uh-huh. It's just a joke. It's just a joke. But I'm just saying, since we're re, since we're reenacting stuff, you know what I mean? Why don't yeah, we just, yeah, walk, you know? <laughs> yeah, walk around in your Marcus Garvey uniform, you know, that, that should thrill them. You know, especially since you have, okay, and I'm done with the announcements, y'all. You know, if you can catch it on the archive, you can catch me online, inbox me, you know, email me, blackfreethinkers at gmail.com. Again, blackfreethinkers at gmail.com. And those of you that have written me, I will respond back to you Monday. It's just over the weekend, it gets a little hectic for me. So my apologies and do not charge it to my heart because it is in the right place. I care for you, and I thank you. And, um, yeah, you had these people out here for Halloween. I have to address this. Dressing like Trayvon and George Zimmerman. I about fell out. Did you see Did you see the one? Did you see the one where the guy? Um, it was a muscular white guy, and he just painted himself black and called himself Serena Williams. Did you see that one? No, and I'm not really looking forward to seeing that either. You know. Well, no, of course none of us are. But the point is, is yeah. that 
Skin color is not a Halloween costume, and blackface is never okay. It's never this is appropriate. Not okay. never. Right. Just never. So, I mean, there, exactly. if you want to, if you want to, if if you as a white person or, or any person want to, you know, play a character that's known to be white or a person, a real person, you don't have to make yourself black or white. You really don't. You know what I mean? There's ways of doing it, you know, that, but right. particularly black. I mean, because there's really no such thing as white face, okay? Let's just keep that in mind. Black face is, has, is, has a history behind it where black people were being insulted and, you know, demeaned and all of those types of things. It is never okay to do black face. Never. Yeah. And I don't want to hear anyone bring up white girls because those were still black men and you knew they were black men, and they knew they were black men. You know what I mean? Playing, you know what I mean, white white people or white girls. But, not, you know, it was supposed, it really was making fun of a lot of the black stereotypes that are out there to begin with. Right. Exactly. So I don't want to hear any mess about it's okay when, when black people do it. No. BS. They're not even remotely the same. There you go. There you go. And, you know, we want to end this on a positive note. <laughs> end the show on a positive note. Um, I was on a show last Friday, the God Discussion, and, you know, we talked about a variety of issues, and you guys, I want you to go and check it out. Deborah tagged me, and it's on my wall. Go out there and listen to it. It was three hours of fun. We had a wonderful, wonderful time. You know, Deborah and Al Stefanelli from the God Discussion, and their website is GodDiscussion.com. So go out Yay. there and take a look. Yay, God Discussion. But, yeah, so go out there, take a look, but and listen to the, um, the broadcast, you know, the podcast, and we had great, great fun. And on the show, I talked about, you know, um, charity and outreach and all of that, and I talked about the scholarship program for Black Skeptics Group. Now, Black Skeptics Group is a 501c3 organization, which means your donations are tax deductible. And this People of Color Beyond Faith series that we're producing, that falls under Black Skeptics Group. So, again, it's a 501c3 organization, and we're still taking donations for the scholarship fund. We gave five scholarships away last year, and we want to give more scholarships away next year as well. You know, five deserving young people went to college. As a matter of fact, at the end of next year, at the end of the um, spring semester, they will be coming on the show and we'll be discussing with them their first year of college, their excitement and, you know, what they learned and their experiences. And so we're looking forward to that and we want to congratulate each and every last one of them. So if you want to give a donation, you can PayPal a donation, blackskeptics at gmail.com, and that's the PayPal address, blackskeptics at gmail.com, B-L-A-C-K. S-K-E-P-T as in tango, I-C-S at gmail.com, blackskeptics at gmail.com. You can make your and donations. And since we're talking about making donations, I have a GoFundMe account to help me pay mm-hmm. for my application fees so that I can finish my PhD. If you guys want to contribute to that, I think Kim will post it on the wall. 
You were posted on the wall because I can't remember. I can't find the link. So post okay. it on my wall, and, okay. you know, I'll post it on the Black Freethinkers um, page. And, you know, um, you post it on my wall, I'll post it on the page, the public page. Okay. And okay. so we'll put that out there. And, again, people of color beyond faith, we want your support. We need your support. In order for us to bring you programs like this and other programs, and there's a lot more we're working on in the background, um, we need That's your right. support. And you all can okay. donate to that as well. You can specify. So we're going to need your support because these conferences take money. Um, you know, it takes money for us to get some of the materials to bring forth, you know, some of the information. And, again, it's a 501c3 organization. Um, next year, um, a STEM program will be rolled out, S-T-E-M, science, technology, engineering, in math, that's what it's doing. Okay, okay. So you know we're kind of kind of wore herself out talking about the riots, y'all. Yeah, you know, you see, I had to pace myself, right? Okay. So there's a lot more coming out. You were producing some things, and for those of you that will be able to make it out to the physical conference. We are going to have a blast. We are going to have a good time, and um, there's going to be some surprises down there. And like I said, we want to see you. I want to meet you. I want to meet you. You know, it will be an honor to meet you guys. You know, I want to and see you. And, and go ahead, honey. I was going to say, and don't I said, and and tell us, engage us. Tell us what you want to see. Tell us what you think. You, what you think our communities need. You know, don't don't be afraid to tell us. You know, we we take suggestions, and you know, we this program is. You know, we have fun doing this program, but you know, Kim, Kim, I, and some of the other people who do these shows, we we are interested in the things that we talk about anyway. You know what I mean? So we would probably be doing a lot of this research just for our own, you know, entertainment. You know, right? But if there's something exactly. that you're particularly interested in, or something that you're um, that you've never heard about or that you'd like to see, you know, discussed, you know, please let us know. I mean, we, we take your suggestions seriously. So. Exactly. And the same thing goes for the people of color beyond faith. If there is something that you want to hear us discuss on one of these panels, turn your radio down, Raina. Let me know. I don't have my radio on. Oh, okay. Um let us know and, you know, send it to POC Beyond Chat or you can even send it to POCBF. Those are the hashtags, POC Beyond Chat as well as POCBF, B as in Bravo. Um, so send that to us. We take all of that in, under consideration. We answer your questions um, and take your inquiries, and we appreciate you. We're doing this for you. We want to give back to the secular community. So it's important that, you know, we facilitate and grow these relationships because we do care. We do care. Yeah. We care about what you want. We care about what you need. And, you know, this is our way of showing it to you. We may not be able to talk to you every day, but, this is our way of showing you how much we care about you and we care about what you think and what you need. So, you know, reach out, let us know. Next week will be part two of Privileged Mutiny. We will be talking about, like I said, urban planning, interstate planning, public policy, redlining, um, gentrification, you know, lost communities. And the name of that show is Inner City Blues. 
And the show after that is part three of Privileged Mutiny, and we will be talking about affirmative action, the middle class, and all of that good, fun stuff there. And on that note, if you all can't tell, I'm in a really good damn mood today, and I'm sleepy as hell. Um, So, I... I really am. I'm so sleepy, but I'm not going to sleep because I have to get up and go to the gym in the morning, and she's going to torture me, and we all know how that goes. Anyway, thank you. I'll see you in D.C. at the AAH conference. I'll see you in Los Angeles at the People of Color Beyond Faith conference the end of January and the middle of October. It'll be mid-October for the conference. So anyway, honey, Love you. I really do. I really do. And I thank you, God. You know, um, you just don't know. All right, sometimes you all make my heart sing, and I love those emails, especially the last couple of ones that I got. Love you, baby. Thank you. You all have a good weekend. Take care. Take care.